Hello and welcome to our FIS podcast, Castaway, keeping you in the know on the shipping and commodity world where we're all at home quarantined. We know that the working and business has changed dramatically in the past couple of months, so developing a range of resources to help keep you up to date on everything happening. If you'd like to find out more, you can visit our website, www.freightinvestorservices.com, or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. FIS is fully functional. Every broker, every office, and every team is ready to help you with pricing, research, and operational assistance. Hello and welcome to a sunny Wednesday morning in London uh, and back again with the FIS Castaway podcast. Uh, welcome again to our guests, our usual guests. Uh, Alex, our MD of strategy here in London with myself. Uh, Kerry, all the way from home. And uh, we have Tom again, all the way from Singapore. Thank you again, guys, for joining. Afternoon, everyone. Chris. Good morning. Uh, Kerry, you want to give us an update on the app? Indeed, the FIS Live app is going live as we speak uh, and we have had overwhelming demand for it uh, which is a great thing uh, please do check out all of the features and the information on it at freightinvestorservices.com forward slash fis live uh, where you can learn all about it and you can register for access uh, registration will take a couple of days just because of the high levels of demand but uh, we will get you there and uh, and uh, very excited to be rolling it out this week. Great stuff. It's a fantastic piece of kit. And I know that loads of clients will find it very useful for their uh, operations. So we're going to start again like we did last week with some news stories. And let's start with the bad news first. And we can gradually pick up as we go through the podcast. Tom, you're, you have a story on, a, on the new virus strain. Yeah, the harbinger of doom uh, that I am. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, um, the article that I, I thought was quite interesting uh, today is a Bloomberg article uh, detailing the signs of a new uh, strain or, or strain of the virus uh, in northern China. Um, so uh, essentially, it would appear that the virus is mutating uh, in some way, shape or form. Uh, and the way that that is expressing itself is that the virus um, seems to be now carried by people for longer um, and takes a longer time for them to test negative. And it also appears that it takes now longer than the one to two weeks that had been observed before for people to start displaying symptoms. Um, and therefore, obviously, makes it harder to detect uh, and can possibly spread uh, further and wider. Um, so somewhat concerning. Um, China is starting to put that part of um, put, put, put that part of the country into some form of lockdown again, um, which is a huge amount of people uh, under restriction, it would seem. Um, but it is still only 30 odd cases, 34 cases, I think, uh, that are that are popping up. So hopefully it's containable uh, and it's it's not something we need to be getting too worried about. But it was uh, obviously of note uh, this morning, as um, is the, the main headline on Bloomberg. And an interesting side note to that, Tom, uh, I once spent a year living in Harbin and it happened to be during the outbreak of SARS. So I spent a few months in lockdown in the city of Harbin uh, during the original SARS outbreak. Uh, I can I can testify that they were very, very efficient about keeping us locked down back then. So I'm hoping that they will uh, maintain that efficiency now. And let's hope this uh, strain doesn't spread too much. Fingers crossed, indeed. 
So my uh, article that I've picked is from the the Economist, uh, which was about the kind of breakup of the world trading order. Um, it, it talked about the kind of previous conditions. We all talk about those '90s, the noughties, the great boom years uh, of uh, economic development, economic growth, and especially of globalization. So it talks about some of the things which have been happening in the US and the impact that the virus has had on economies. Not that that has generated the the outcome itself, but it has exacerbated previous problems uh, that the economy, the world economy had. So if you look at the kind of post-financial crash uh, economy, uh, compared to the two, 2000 peaks, we have never really gained back to those levels of global trade, foreign direct investment or cross-border bank uh, lending. So these are kind of things which have been brewing for a longer time, which the virus has you know, just blown apart. We obviously had as well the election in 2016 of Donald Trump and his mantra of America first. Um, what is interesting here is what they brought out with the US. So they've done here a chart about the change in US imports. Uh, this is compared uh, July to December 2017 to July, December 2019. And you can see all the way down from chemicals, transport, metals, car parts to textiles and agriculture, China has lost ground. And the areas which have, have increased most significantly are those other areas in the Americas and also other areas of Southeast Asia. So what this article was talking about is the change or the diversification of people's supply lines. A lot of this has exposed our great reliance as a world economy on China and its growth. It's like clockwork growth of, what was it, 6.8%, 6% for the world economy. And a lot of areas of the world have huge percentages lumped on one country. So you look at, I know Kerry's talked about a lot of this to do with the air freight PPE. About 42% of the world's PPE is manufactured in China or three quarters of Italian blood thinners. It's a random one in there. Or 60% of the ingredients for Japanese antibiotics. There's a huge reliance on China's economy. So what this article is pointing out is the fact that we had that great globalization. We may now see a retrenchment to a certain extent, be that uh, national governments saying that things have to be produced in areas or companies generally looking closer uh, for their geographically closer for their supplies of whatever materials and diversifying that supply base. So it doesn't mean that, you know, China's going to collapse out of existence as a supplier, you know, a significant supplier for a lot of the world, but a lot of them are looking to what they term China point two. The, you know, these other Southeastern Asian countries, be that Thailand, Vietnam, who have the ability to provide these, these services. And that doesn't mean that if you have a problem like the impacts that COVID-19 has had on China, that there will be the ability to, to mitigate problems and to not have everything wiped out because China is taken out from a certain situation, which in some ways makes a lot of sense in terms of common sense that we would become too reliant on, on one country. Uh, but uh, even, even the European Union, the head of the parliament's head of the Committee on International Trade uh, said that they may bring in certain products requiring European production. I think certainly strategic industries, like we've seen with pharma and stuff like that, will definitely move onshore or be reshored uh, relatively quickly off the back of this. I think from a Singapore perspective, what's quite interesting, sort of um, picking up on that theme, Chris, is, is for 
18 months, two years now, particularly with what's been going on with, with Hong Kong uh, in, in recent history with the sort of protests, etc. There has been an ongoing conversation about Singapore stepping up to, to take over as the financial centre of Asia. And a lot of that has centred around the fact that Asia is more than China and everyone sort of forgets that when they talk about Asia. Asia and China are sort of a proxy for one another. But Southeast Asia plus India as an economy is bigger than China. And Singapore is a sort of gateway to, to that. So Singapore has for a long time been positioning itself to, to take over um, from Hong Kong as the access to China, as the sort of access to China and the rest of Southeast Asia. And going back to what you just said, this this sort of will probably have accelerated that process quite a lot. And, and I do think that that diversification of supply chains has been going on for, for quite a while as well. I mean, well before COVID, I believe Apple had announced, what, two years ago now, something like that, that they would start setting up production facilities for the iPhone in Mexico as well, um, you know, in order to, to create some redundancies in the system for that exact reason that you mentioned, Chris, you know. So um, it does seem like that the trend will have been already created. I think it's probably just been accelerated greatly by, uh, by the outbreak of, uh, of the coronavirus. Certainly. I'm going to be putting in my application for FIS's new office in the Maldives. <laughs> uh, exactly. They definitely do need a you know, new, new director there, and I can do the podcast from there, as we've seen our ability right now to bring in Tom all the way from Singapore. So uh, I think it's perfect. <laughs> uh, Alex, you wanted to talk about your, in some ways, good news story. Yeah, so well, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting one that I came up in both The Guardian and Bloomberg over the last couple of days, and that's about the fall in carbon emissions. Um, so the report that both both journals uh, sort of cite is a 19% plunge um, in April, and that's from from April last year, 19, to, to this April, uh, which is significant. And I think if you're in London at the moment, you certainly can see the difference in the air quality just by looking out the window. And a stroll is a lot more pleasant than it would normally be at this time of year. And a lot of photos in the press of Mexico City and Los Angeles, which obviously cities notorious for their air quality. Um, but I mean, it's worth noting that I don't think even the most ardent sort of environmentalist would want to have achieved this drop in carbon dioxide this way. And um, the, the articles go on to discuss how, you know, this is actually a very sort of small amount and look at what it's produced, that it's going to have to be more than just a behavioural change, that it's going to have to be, you know, an industrial change. Our entire system will have to change to sort of get down to these levels again once industrial production resumes. Um, so I've, for a lot of people, I think it will have changed, this entire episode will have changed their way of thinking. So it'll be interesting to see how we do with our environment going forward off this. I don't know what you guys think, but for me, I'd like to resume a, a drop in carbon dioxide, uh, but certainly not with another virus. But Tom, you you were, you highlighted this uh, previously to, to coming on the podcast about um, article talk about the difference between you know individual actions, us as people, compared to country action and much larger companies. Yeah, so I think the um, the the article that Alex is talking about the, the Bloomberg article. Sort of yes, highlights the nineteen percent drop that we've that we've seen. But what it flags is that I think it only takes us back to two thousand and seven levels yeah. of carbon dioxide production. So you know, yes, as a headline figure, it's fantastic. But in real terms, you know, it, 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 it's not moving the dial. Um, you know, if if the sort of lock in 
continues until say June, July, like sort of globally, then then maybe we have a five percent reduction this year over the course of the year. If it continues on, maybe it gets to seven percent. But that is yeah at the expense of the economy. But but what's highlighted is that really us not getting in our cars and not flying. Uh, yes, it makes an impact, but it's not really going to move the dial over the course of you know the next ten years to get to where we need to be. Um, you know, flying um, you know only makes up three percent of sort of global emissions. So as much as it's all not flying at the moment makes a difference, it doesn't really move the dial on a sort of international level. Uh, and it yeah, that, the point is that it really does need some global joined up thinking uh, around how. We approach energy production moving forward, and yeah, maybe the uh, the the virus does sort of force a few issues. I think what's been quite interesting to see is you know in London, London's now talking about closing roads to cars on a permanent basis to create more space for cyclists and pedestrians, so that you know people can social distance as they commute or go shopping. Uh, Manchester's talking about doing the same. So you know there is a push seemingly off the back of this towards a sort of lower carbon future um, but it's just how much follow through there is off the back of some initiative that will be taken um, as we and also uh, you know one of the things to, to note here that's interesting about what you just said time is uh, is what people will be noticing in the cities of course is, is the particulate emissions uh, going down you know the fact that you've taken five or six million vehicles off the road in London for the last few weeks means that you know you're getting this PM 2.5 levels way, way down, which is why the air is so much visibly clearer. Um, and that seems likely to stick around. You know, I think that's the habit that we might see change is a lot of cities move towards uh, a model with a lot less driving um, or, or uh, uh, and, uh, and increase their public transport investment. But, uh, you know, a lot more bicycle lanes, as you said, but uh, it's not really moving the dial in terms of actual carbon emissions that much. Now, a big problem that you'll have is the the kind of fight you've got between having something which is sustainable and economically doesn't harm everybody, but is still beneficial on all the notes that we know about in terms of the environment. Because if you look at China as a country, it's its power now and all of its ability and its prowess and its unity is built off its economic development that it's had. So to turn around and go, you know all of that, we can't do that because you know the environment's terrible. And that, there's a real problem there, I think, for countries like China or ones coming up to develop India, for example, to do that balancing act, because all these Western countries, the most developed countries have had the ability to pump whatever they wanted previous, be that the Industrial Revolution yeah. and everything. And now they've been turned around and going, oh, no, that's not allowed. You know, you can yeah. see the problem that that could cause. Yeah, but, they're, 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 that's why it has to be a global joined up effort, whatever sort of it can't be a country per country basis, because, yeah, exactly as you say, like the, if you look at it, you know, Carbon dioxide has to be looked at as a per capita production, not on a, um, you know, that is the only way to look at it um, in a fair fair and meaningful way. Like the US or Australia, for example, their, their production per head is, is massive. But if you look at the headlines, India and, and China produce much, much more. But on a per person basis, it's a vastly lower number. Um so yeah, whatever whatever solution we end up at has to be has to be globalized. If that's you know developed nations that have had the advantage of of um, you know, being able to produce these these uh, the carbon dioxide emissions for the last hundred years need to subsidize 
the developing world, et cetera, et cetera. You know, those are all things that are going to have to be explored. But um, it's yeah, not an easy one to solve. Not easy at all. And let's let's move on to some commodity specific stuff. Well, we could talk about this forever, I imagine. Um, I'll start off with with the oil markets and continue with the good news. If you're a producer, we, the bullish times are back in oil. We are back up, moving upwards. Uh, Brent is just below thirty five dollars, or it was this morning. Um, we are seeing as well. You know, we were talking about the previous podcast about these U.S. stock levels. Uh, the API have predicted again a, a draw in those stock levels. That's the second week. In a row, we'll find out later this afternoon whether they are correct when the EIA does announce the real real data. And then again, to look at China and the opening of the economy, we've seen their refinery runs increase by 11% in April. Uh, 13.1 million barrels was the barrels per day were the, were the April runs, uh, which is higher than the average for the same last year. And also crude imports have uh, moved up to 9.84 million. So we're seeing that demand come back in China, even though we have, as we highlighted, that uh, new quarantine in the north of China. It seems that oil is getting its its support back, and we're not talking about. And we've seen articles written about you know, the return to those negative pricing. It doesn't seem like we're going to have another shock like that uh, with the current sentiment in the market. I don't know if everyone else is kind of feeling but that. Kind of is that thing. because the storage conundrums now being solved for the sort of retail public and, and and other people, or is this because there's actually sentiment positive sentiment that's that's forcing the price upwards? Do you think? I think it's generally that the the cuts that they're doing are starting to impact, and we've seen that from U.S. companies making those cuts. We've seen that from the OPEC cut that came out, Saudi saying they're going to cut again, and that both the Saudis and Kuwait saying, "Oh, actually, we're underneath where we said we'd be." So I think that that has definitely given in genuine and positive sentiment that although there's still a problem with storage and we are quite close to being at maximum storage, that the onslaught of endless production and we don't know where we're going to put it may be coming towards a solvable problem. That's what we're seeing. So, Kerry, seeing that you didn't have a news story, we'll kick you off on dry freight. What are we seeing there? Well, we've seen a surprisingly strong bounce in the last few days on the Cape size, uh, reversing the recent very, very steep downward trend uh, that was holding for the last few weeks. Uh, this bounce on the physical market was primarily Pacific light, better volumes of iron ore and coal coming from Australia recently. Um, and what's really interesting here is it's managed to offset the very real and serious concerns about Brazil's growing COVID-19 crisis, um, which looks more and more likely to, to have an effect on exports uh, out of Brazil. Um, so the capes have actually managed to move up about uh, $500 week on week to uh, a spot index of 3,462. Uh, that also put a floor under the Panamaxes, which uh, are slightly down week on week still at about 4,000, just over $4,000, but, uh, but uh, seem to be finding a floor. We're seeing a few of the grain houses take cover for the back end of the year now, uh, um, buying up some Q3 and Q4. Uh, on the Panamaxes as well. Uh, I think the overall situation for the Capes uh, certainly remains overtonaged, uh, and especially, you know, pending what happens over the next few weeks in Brazil, I think there is uh, a lot of downside risk here. So, you know, while it's great to see that rates are improving somewhat, uh, I would not imagine this is a bounce that's sustainable in any long-term sense. But, you know, still, 
always nice to see uh, always nice to see the market come uh, a little bit out of doldrums. Yeah, I know we had the market in uh, intensive care for quite a while, and it's uh, definitely going to see <laughs> some movement back upwards. Uh, there's only one way I guess it could go, but <laughs> Tom, let's bring you back in on the, on the iron ore. Uh, we're still uh, seeing this up at these levels, aren't we? These these very high levels. Yeah, yeah. I mean the uh, the index uh, is up uh, just under eight dollars from last time we spoke. So we're we're nearly at a hundred dollar iron ore, which. Um, <laughs> Is, is quite remarkable given everything that's gone on. Um, but what Kerry was just uh, touching on there uh, with regards to supply side concerns uh, in Brazil is sort of the story of this week uh, in terms of the, the price action. Um, Brazil is one of the world's biggest producers uh, and and it, it looks increasingly likely that, you know, they're going to be shut-ins essentially on, on Brazilian exports um, or if not, at least massively reduced uh, volume over the short to medium term. Um, so Brazil is very much a watch this space uh, and see how it develops, but it doesn't look like it's developing favorably at the moment um, and with no real exit strategy uh, coming from a seemingly very, very absent leader uh, at the moment. Um, on the On the demand side, I mean, China, uh, figures are very, very strong. Uh, sort of a few uh, markers that are, uh, are looked at in the market are trade, uh, sort of uh, printing above seasonal highs. So blast furnace utilization is at around 89% in China, which is you know, two or three or maybe three or four percentage points above the sort of the seasonal average. Um, construction material utilization is, is very well at you know, season highs uh, or average season highs. So, so you know, we're, we're seeing strong numbers coming out of China that support the recovery talk and, and do highlight the fact that, you know, that economy is starting to normalize. Um, what you've also seen as well is the, um, it's the National Party Conference uh, kicking off tomorrow in China, which um, there are production restrictions around that to keep the air clear for the international media. Um, so there'll have been some uh, restocking going on uh, in the last few days uh, to sort of get any capacity or inventory build uh, requirements sorted uh, in the run up to that, as, uh, as they know there's no production over the, over the coming week. So that will have driven uh, some price action as well. But the question now really is, is um, $100 a tonne sustainable over the the short term, the medium term, or the long term. Over the long term, we're seeing a little bit of weakness at the back of this year. Sort of eighty-five dollars is where the Q4 is hovering at the moment, and uh, yeah, that would suggest that you know these levels aren't sustainable. But who knows? It's 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 been a one-way street on iron ore for the last sort of two months. Really, I seem to remember saying on our first podcast that it was going one way, um, and it has done nothing but that. Uh, in very, very much stronger fashion than I was anticipating, certainly. Yeah, a self-congratulatory pat on the back for getting it spot on, Tom. <laughs> Everyone deserves one every now and again, Chris. Don't worry, the T-shirt's <laughs> in the post. I was right. <laughs> the you know, the, the exact situation we were sort of afraid of uh, and, and, and the one thing we said would be the big potential supply-side risk, uh, uh, a COVID outbreak in Brazil that became uncontainable has now happened. So, you know, it's... Uh, I recall a couple of weeks ago discussing that on the podcast, and uh, and uh, unfortunately that does seem to be the case. So in the short term, it's hard to see how this could get uh, sold very significantly down. 
but we uh, started with bad news. And Kerry, you're going to end us with bad news on the air freight market. <laughs> um, well, you know, for a particular route, in particular, Hong Kong freight prices into the U.S. have collapsed uh, in direct correlation with collapsing cargo volumes, which have been down 50% week on week. Um, this is coming largely from congestion at uh, Chinese airports, um, which is preventing the efficient supply of uh, mainly PPE supplies uh, via Hong Kong. Um, and of course, this is leading us into a period where we've been forecasting a, a weakness in the air freight market anyway. Um, you know, you have a number of carriers, including Lufthansa, IAG, American, Delta, um, saying they want to try and, you know, at least return to some scheduled services in June. So you might have a doubling of capacity in the next couple of months easily, um, which was always going to put some downward pressure on the market. Uh, you know, at the moment, it looks like a weak Q3 period and just a very highly uncertain Q4, depending on how much of that capacity returns and depending on where the global economy goes. Um, in terms of uh, in terms of bounce back after this crisis, yeah, but we've been saying for quite a while that the um, the air freight market is not in a particularly good long term perspective. I mean, that's been shown by the the Rolls Royce news as well, hasn't it? Exactly, exactly. They slashed nine thousand jobs. Uh, this is directly linked to the collapse in air travel, and uh, and in fact, the subsequent sort of pausing, let's say, of of quite a few aircraft orders from both uh, Boeing and Airbus. Uh, you know, by all the major airlines who uh, who suddenly don't need all these uh, these hundreds of aircraft they've ordered over the next few years. So, um, you know, it'll be very interesting to see where this goes. And again, just how much of that capacity is able to return to the market in the next couple of months, um, because so much of the air freight capacity relies on resumption of uh, scheduled passenger services. And that brings us neatly to our regular feature the uh, random commodity of the week. Uh, and this week, we are tipping the scales towards uh, salmon futures, uh, which we've done a little bit of, of research on. Uh, for those, uh, the index is run by uh, Fishpool, who's a, a Scandi-based uh, index company. And uh, this is financially settled. So if you do find yourself incredibly long on the contracts, there won't be a massive lorry, road of, lorry load of fish being delivered to your, your front door. Um, there is a very specific requirement on the, the fish this is based on. Uh, this is fresh salmon, none of the frozen stuff. It has to be gutted, superior quality, and uh, the load, the size which they're basing the index on is uh, three to six kilograms. Um, I can tell you that the market at the moment is uh, backwardated in the, the front several months. So I think that's more in line with people who are thinking that there's serious demand at the moment uh, in the near term for uh, for salmon for all those uh, home-cooked meals. I imagine a lot of the salmon market is driven by Japanese sushi, though. So that's a bit odd. It'd be seasonable, seasonal as well, right? Ahead of Christmas and other uh, major festivities, I suspect um, that picks up. You're also trying to get quite a lot of the... Uh, you're trying to guess the... Uh, the, the strength of the spawning season, really, um, and uh, how much what what the salmon stocks are going to look like, um, which is which is trying to guess that supply side. I think is the fascinating bit of this. Is it wild salmon, Chris, or farmed? I, I do not know. It is wild salmon, I believe. Oh, I didn't know we had such an expert on salmon futures, Gary. <laughs> cool, man. 
It's always been one of my favorites. I'm just very uh, nervous of having a conversation. I'm just waiting for Alex to come up with something. I can't get any. I can't fit any of them in. You guys have all gone too fast. I had like three or four lined up. And... Unbelievable. <laughs> maybe, we, maybe, maybe we opt to push on to a new subject before he gets one in. <laughs> come on, before before we end for the week. Well, I mean, this is certainly the place to discuss these these fish markets. And, you know, um, we, it feels like we're trawling the depths, but I suppose, you know, we're educating people, really. And I wouldn't want to leave it to anyone else. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, personally, I've taken quite offence here that you guys edged me out of putting all my puns in, really. We'll have to... <laughs> <laughs> but there we are. As we see uh, a new strain of virus uh, arrive in China with a new lockdown, uh, with claims in the economist that the globalization of the world is en- ending and we're going to be retrenchment in national governments, uh, we end for this week. So thank you again, uh, guys, for joining me. And I hope that everyone listening joins us next week. Thank Thanks you very much. Thank you, guys.